weeknights from 6 on 2FM. And a very good evening from Damien O'Mara. You are most welcome to the Thursday edition of Game On. Now, we have had reports of what has been described as GHWS, George Hamilton Withdrawal Syndrome, with no games for two days at the FIFA World Cup. The great man himself will join us from Qatar shortly uh, for his reflections on the tournament to date. Uh, one of the most familiar faces in Formula One, Lee McKenzie, will be with us to chat about her new book, Inside F1. And we will cross to the States as well to check in uh, on what has been an eventful week of sports uh, stateside with Jeff Shepard. 51552 is our text number. You can tweet the programme at Game On. 2FM, we'd love to hear from you between now and 7 o'clock. Game on on 2FM. So uh, plenty of sports on going today. We're going to chat to George in just a second. The um, World Cup and another tragedy around the World Cup dominating the headlines uh, this evening. FIFA say it has, uh, it's deeply saddened following the reported death of a migrant worker at a World Cup facility in Qatar. A Filip- Filipino worker, uh, it's reported, fell to his death at a resort which has been used as a training base for the Saudi Arabia national team. Uh, of course, it was reported last year by The Guardian that 6,500 migrant workers had died in the country since it was awarded the World Cup back in 2010. That's a figure contested by the organisers of the tournament. FIFA today say they have been made aware of an accident without expanding on the details. Uh, in terms of the on-field matters, the footballing matters, Luis Enrique has left his post as the Spanish manager following uh, their exit from the tournament. The Portuguese Football Federation has quashed reports that Cristiano Ronaldo threatened to leave the squad uh, following his reduction to the bench for the country's 6-1 win uh, over Switzerland on Tuesday. The FAI fined €20,000 by UEFA uh, due to the singing which took place in the Irish team's dressing room after their playoff win to secure World Cup qualification against Scotland back in October. That news comes as Stephanie Roach was confirmed as Shamrock Rovers' latest signing ahead of the new Women's National League campaign. And the IRFU have today pledged an additional €1 million of funding to women's rugby in Ireland after launching the Women's Rugby in Ireland report this morning. There are some of the stories making the headlines this Thursday evening. It is a down day at the World Cup, but plenty of stuff for us to reflect upon and plenty uh, of stories to catch up on from Qatar. Delighted to say that George Hamilton joins us live. George, how are you? Good. I'm very good. Thank you, Damien. Thank you for having me. It's, it's uh, lovely to talk to you. Well, thank you for, for giving up what is a, a rare evening off. And I would imagine with the, <laughs> with the frantic nature of how these games have gone and I know that is the nature of tournament football but this time around it must feel like the treadmill has been turned up uh, to a higher level of speed than any of the ones that you've dealt with before that's a very good way of putting it uh, I never quite thought of it uh, in those terms but certainly it's been day after day of something that uh, you, you dream of as a kid that you might be able to get to a World Cup match every every night and it, it, it happened over a, a period of nine nights one after the other as, as the games just kept rolling but it is very intense and it's also very different different from uh, other World Cups that I've been to because uh, it's, it's more as many people have said like an Olympic Games where you, you, you don't actually leave uh, your, your hotel once you've arrived you stay there for the duration and you head off to different venues so it's it's like the two and a half weeks of the Olympics in the first week you might be doing cycling or you might be doing swimming or whatever the, the second week you might then be doing athletics but you're going to different venues uh, taking in different sports here you're going to do different venues taking in different matches and there were those who tried to create the, the, the kind of jackpot of, of going to four matches in a day during the group stage because it was physically possible to get from stadium to stadium to stadium albeit with difficulty because obviously a lot of roads were closed off and there was a lot of heavy traffic uh, but there were people 
people who, who were doing more than one game in a day and, and it was feasible it was possible so I think the, the comparison with an Olympic Games was very apt the Qatar I think you could you could squeeze it into the boundaries of Cork and Kerry put together that's mm. all the size it is so you can understand how it would be possible to base yourself in Bandon and get over to Killarney and get over to Cork City or Middleton to get to matches uh, all in the one day so it's, it's not the, as big a deal as other World Cups would be where you'd be leaving a venue going to an airport flying to another city or taking the, the high speed rail as we did in Germany and France and then ending up somewhere else that night so it's a different kind of World Cup from that kind of feel alright How does that alter the experience? It alters the experience in the sense that I suppose it's, it's not doesn't feel like a World Cup because it's you're not travelling through a country and being in Qatar which is the first Middle Eastern host as we all know of the World Cup and it's it without being disrespectful it, there is not the kind of cultural experience to offer that there would be in a Germany or a France or a United States with a diversity of culture that you come across as you move through the various regions of the country this is a finger of land that juts out into the Persian Gulf and it is one country that's only been independent since 1971 when it ceased being a British protectorate and then they found the, the, the gas and then and then they got very rich and they built the place very very quickly so uh, th there is not a great deal of, of modern Qatari history of course there's lots of history that goes back to the Bedouins and all of that but it's not the ca the same kind of idea that you would have when you go to a World Cup in France or the Far East to take another example Japan and Korea where you were you were aware that you were in a, a place that, that had offered all sorts of different experiences I, I think the best way to put it is the experience in Qatar it's the same experience wherever you are mm. because you're in this basically in the same place and does that I don't necessarily want to say rubbish the idea but does that dilute this notion and we get fixated on the legacy that an Olympics a World Cup a major event will leave in a territory but but it does seem to be not necessarily like a vacuous creation but it is difficult to see how football will take a rooting in Qatar whereas it might maybe in the Arab world that it's it's you know Qatar 2022 how much will it resonate with the the locals the natives in 10 15 years time Honestly, I don't think it'll be thought about anymore because they'll have moved on to the next project. Their next big thing, they want to host the Olympic Games. They're going to have the Asian Games here. That will take their focus. The World Cup will have been a step along the way. But I don't think there'll be misty eyes in 2040 in, in Doha looking back at the glory days of 2022. I mean, look at the United States. Uh, Seth Blatter's great evangelizing mission to bring football to the soccer to the United States mm. and make it a big, big game there because uh, he would plant the World Cup in the United States and take it coast to coast. That was in 19. They're going to have another go in 2026 along with Canada and Mexico because the evangelizing of the United States didn't work. And I don't think it's going to work here either because it's, football is European and South American. Let's be honest about that. And everything else is an add-on. And the World Cup is the pinnacle of achievement. And it used to be held one year in Europe, four years later in South America and vice versa. And that's what the World Cup effectively is because a bit like baseball's World Series, the World Cup is actually Europe and South America at play. And look at the countries that have won it and tell me where football has taken root because the World Cup was once there mm. and I think the reality is that won't happen because that's not the way the sporting world works. In a sporting sense has it exceeded your expectation and to what extent I know people will talk about this you know they've been rebounded but the, the shock of Argentina losing to Saudi Arabia you need results like that early on in order to generate excitement around what on this occurrence has been the most phenomenal stages of group stage football with everything in the mix down to the last games. 
Yes, uh, you do. I think in a footballing sense, it, it has exceeded expectations. I don't think there can be any doubt about that. Uh, there have been a few, uh, shall we say, uh, what did John Kenny call them, gruelers? I mean, England United States was one that I did. Some matches that just didn't didn't catch fire at all. But then there have been the shocks along the way, the major, major shocks. And Spain's uh, elimination, Argentina's defeat. Uh, you do need those. And then, of course, you alluded to what we saw in the group stages, a phenomenal round of fixtures, simultaneous fixtures rounding out the group stages which has given FIFA the frighteners about reducing it to th groups of three uh, which would mean that one team would not have a game on the last day in the 2026 World Cup that cannot be a runner mm. because uh, we think back to 1982 in West Germany uh, and Austria playing out a meaningless draw and we were all, let us not forget also involved in something like that ourselves in 1990 in Sicily with uh, 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 the Netherlands and, and Ireland playing out a draw once they knew that they'd both go through if the draw was the result so I think we've seen now how important it is to have three, four team groups with three matches each and simultaneous matches at the end where you're on a knife edge on a cliff top mm. so to speak and, and Germany Germany sent home by a ball let's not debate the rights or wrongs of that but it was a controversial decision that led to the second Japanese goal that effectively put Germany out and at one stage Spain were going to be out because of Costa Rica now they did go out uh, eventually uh, and I think deservedly so and I'm not surprised Luis Enrique has gone to hear in your headline that he's that he's packed it in because Spain have been stuck in a time warp uh, since the end of the last decade and have not moved on uh, played the beautiful tick-attack of football that produces the lowest number of goals of anybody ever to win the World Cup in 2010 when they only managed eight from seven games and were world champions you, you can't progress like that and they haven't moved on and the very fact that uh, Morata is among the leading scorers though he's no longer here points up the fact that if Spain had had a number nine if Germany had had a number nine they might still be here uh, but Morata's three goals didn't didn't actually help them to to stay in the tournament, and Fulcrook's two goals didn't help Germany to stay in the tournament, and they're gone. But that's that's a lesson. But that's sorry, I've gone off on a tangent. You were asking about has it exceeded expectations, and my answer would be yes. Yes, but don't, don't worry, the the tangent tied it all up for us nicely. Um, <laughs> what is what is your moment of the tournament been so far? Oh. Goodness gracious, um, that's very hard. But I'd have to say Messi. You know, Messi uh, is just such a, a phenomenal player and, and the goals that he produces from nowhere. And that goal that he scored against uh, Australia, uh, when he, you know, we're all not too sure about how Argentina are going to get on. And they've had that awful start against Saudi Arabia and then uh, Morocco. And then they're, they're in against uh, Australia, having got out of the group. And uh, we're wondering, we're wondering just is, is Messi going to do it? And he does it out of nowhere. And he did it, of course, too, in, in the group stage before that, when they, when their backs were really to the wall, uh, and and it was felt that they they might be in trouble after the Saudi Arabian defeat. And who was it? Again, it was Messi who appeared out of nowhere uh, to score the goal that that lifted Argentina onto a different plane. I'm still not convinced that it will be Argentina uh, who will necessarily uh, dominate the tournament and get to the final because Brazil stand in the way, and we, and we cannot overlook the fact that when they had to, they turned it on, and one of the that's third goal wasn't the third goal against uh, South Korea it was just ma magical the first goal too I mean, they were all great goals mm. magnificent goals so my moments if I may have moments of them have been South American moments but I think on the one hand you've Brazil who've shown again how they can rise to the occasion and on the other uh, you've a, a leitmotif in Messi who like like Ronaldo like Lewandowski uh, like the Belgian team are a little bit older now and, and maybe it's this is just one step too far for well, them but, but that I is hesitate to say that about Leo 
Leo Messi. But that is the thing. He is defying the odds, and you know he he he's doing it for the old lads, George, which is important it, because it is a tournament where we place so much expectation on your Lukaku's, your Hazards, that you know the the players that we have seen tried and t- tr- tr- trusted through various stagings of international football, and for whatever reason, the senior heads just haven't seemed to have done it this time around. Hmm. It's strange, isn't it? Uh, and and we, we're we're looking at uh, that all in a nutshell in what happened with Portugal when uh, Ronaldo was dropped and Gonzalo Ramos came on and, and, and scored a hat trick with like, his first kicks in World Cup football. It's just uh, astonishing that uh, the the older the older guys haven't managed to do it. Though uh, Olivier Giroud might uh, might have an issue with you, and <laughs> as I say, Messi too, uh, who is doing it for the uh, lads who is continuing to shine at this level but I'm just wondering I mean it, it's got to go one, one way or the other either it, the, the balloon will eventually burst or he will just do it and it will happen and he will become the greatest uh, by winning the World Cup it's, it's very hard to call very yeah. very hard to call but it, equally when you look at all that he has achieved in the game and you know he has been the man who for so many people over the last couple of years has defined football like surely he can disappear off into the ether when the time comes does he, he doesn't need to win a World Cup to cement his legacy, but it would be the ideal way of walking out the gate. Indeed, uh, and you're absolutely right. He doesn't need to win a World Cup to cement his legacy. Did George Best even play in a World Cup? Exactly. And his legacy lives on. So uh, he doesn't need to win the World Cup to cement his legacy. But by the same token, it would be the fairy tale end, and I don't think anybody would begrudge him that. And given the nature of football in Argentina uh, and, and how big a deal it is, and I, I haven't made the point, but I, I daren't not make the point before uh, concluding our conversation. Argentina have been the best supported team here by Argentina people as opposed to others putting on blue and white striped shirts mm. and shouting for Argentina like, like the waiter in our restaurant in the hotel here who loves Argentina but happens to come from Pakistan you know this is the, the way of the world Argentina have the biggest support at this World Cup and their football is just so ingrained entrenched in them and they have the chap with the name of Maradona you know who did it before and for Messi to be on the pinnacle he deserves to be on it's almost an imperative that he has to win the World Cup so that he can be alongside Maradona on that plinth and for that reason you know the, the romantic in me wishes that he does go all the way and he does do something magical on Sunday week and, and, and Argentina do win the World mm. Cup because it would be the, the absolute absolutely most wonderful curtain call for, for a, a wonderful player who has given such pleasure over so many years because watching from the outside in you know the, there was plenty of coverage around the time Mexico departed that it was going to be such a loss to the tournament because their fans had brought such vibrancy not just to the various stadia but to the fan centres or whatever it is is knocking around Qatar to enjoy yourself with afterwards is it a similar case in your mind that it's important for Argentina to stay there in order to maintain that energy that you know fans will generate around the tournament Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, they, they have been... Um, a breath of fresh air is a cliché, and I don't know that Qatar needs a breath of fresh air because I've just come in from Sukhwakib, the oldest uh, bazaar in town, and, it, and it's heaving, and it's not football fans in there. It's, it's Qataris and other tourists. But yes, the Argentine fans make such an impact. I mean, t- take our own personal experience. We're, we're going to matches at, at 10 o'clock at night. We're leaving the hotel at 6 and taking the metro. and that, So you know, we're four hours before the game, and most times you'll see an odd... An odd odd shirt of competing teams because they're obviously taking the same train as you are Mm. Uh, but when it's Argentina those trains are rammed 
in the afternoon and they're singing and they're dancing and they're blowing their horns in the carriages and everybody's loving it and it, they are making this World Cup experience the, those fans uh, and it, it would it would be a shame if the tournament were, were to be without them but you know the thing is uh, they get themselves into the uh, semi-finals which we're all predicting they will of course uh, they, they play the Netherlands and then they'll play if they beat them Croatia or Brazil in the semi at the weekend but if they're in the semi then they're at least in the third place uh, uh, playoff as well if they're not in the final so the fans the fans have only one more match to win and then they'll be here for the duration which is important so okay so we've Argentina and Brazil to come through the top half of the, the bracket we've England and France uh, in the quarter final Morocco and Portugal um, listen it, it, the easiest thing to do is uh, you know fill content is let's let's all criticise the English and let's all get on the English case you look at it in footballing terms with what France have done on the form line over the course of this tournament we haven't had the inevitable like World War 3 breakout in the French camp which um, might arrive at some stage yet um, surely any objective view on that game sees England go in as underdogs this weekend I think so uh, our uh, view is obviously coloured by our proximity to England and their uh, media uh, who are hyping this up like nobody's business and Kyle Walker against Kylian Mbappe there's going to be no other contest on the pitch uh, on Saturday night except uh, between those two uh, and Southgate hasn't even chosen his team yet um, but I'm sure he will play Walker and he will be up against Mbappe and that will be uh, possibly a defining duel but but that overlooks uh, how uh, France have blossomed uh, with uh, Rabiot behind Mbappe with Girard uh, weighing in with the goals uh, so uh, uh, putting to bed uh, the fear that the absence of Benzema would hurt the French too much and then of course my man I say my man because I've always admired him since he came through Antoine Griezmann uh, playing so well for France as well I, th I think you know that France have got so much and as this, you say the way they have come through the tournament uh, building strength upon strength uh, to top the group, uh, only losing then to Tunisia when it was all done and dusted in their group uh, D, and then coming to get uh, into the uh, quarterfinals the, the way that the way that they did so so convincingly, uh, and the way that Mbappe has played, and the way that he's odds on now for the Golden Boot, and the, that goal he scored, the first goal against Poland, you know, out of nothing, mm -hmm. he had no right to put it where he did, and no right to beat uh, Szczesny with that shot, and he had tied at 98 miles an hour. No goalkeeper in the world was going to stop it. So th that's what England are up against. So. On that basis, I think that they are underdogs. Okay, and then Morocco, who've been such a phenomenal story again uh, against Portugal, upon whom the most intensive focus is going to fall, and will a certain number seven be on the starting lineup or on the bench? Like it was such an odd experience to watch the game the other night. News starts to filter through that the manager has made such a significant call, and then it was like being at Slane when you know Ronaldo appeared on the touchline to be brought on. Like it was a very def like very definite message to the Portuguese management we're the paying public and we want Ronaldo Mm. Yeah, but uh, ultimately, does the paying public want uh, to see its team on the plane home and back in Lisbon at the weekend, or does it want it still to be here in the World Cup? I think that's a, another huge call coming. But how can you drop a guy uh, that you bring in to replace your star man, mm. and he answers you with a with a hat trick? And let's not forget either that Nunez left Benfica for Liverpool, and that's what has enabled uh, young uh, Gonzalo uh, Ramos to, to flourish because he is now the main man in the centre of the attack for Benfica. And they're way up top of the Portuguese league. He's in the goals he's playing regularly in the Champions League and he's only got that spot because Liverpool took Nunez away so uh, we, we, we've got to remember that this Ramos fella is a, is a player a centre forward in the ascendant and the, and the manager was right to give him his go when Ronaldo had been misfiring uh, and now that he's come back with the answer 
I, I don't think he's. I, I think he's undroppable right now, and I think he has to start against Morocco, and Ronaldo will have to, have to satisfy himself with a cameo. Mm. Um, Portugal or Morocco to go through there. I think Portugal, uh, Morocco, I think Portugal have more than Spain have. I, I alluded to the fact that Spain have disappointed me over the years because they are unable to score goals despite the, the, the huge amounts of possession that they've managed to enjoy. And nobody can deny that Spain are, are masters at that aspect of the game, but they are not masters at putting it in the net, notwithstanding the seven they scored in their opening game against Costa Rica. But it was Costa Rica then. Oh, yes, Costa Rica came back. Of course, we know that. But... Uh, I think that was an aberration in, in Spanish terms. They thought they thought they were on their way, and then they got their come up and sadly, uh, and they didn't score. But, but uh, the man I've been talking about, Gonzalo Ramos, he's the difference. He scored three goals in this tournament. So too has Alvaro Morata, the, the Spanish centre forward, who's no longer here. You know, if they'd used Morata more, Spain, I think, would still be in the tournament. But they didn't. They've now. Portugal have Ramos still and they're up against Morocco you know Morocco have given it their all they had a master plan to deal with the Spanish but I think their master plan only works if you're playing a team like Spain who are not going to shoot from 20 yards who are going to play the square ball through the holding midfielder to, to keep the cycle rolling to keep the possession going to make another sequence of successful passes whereas in that circumstance if Portugal get a sniff of the goal at that kind of range there'll be a shot and there may well be a goal and that's where I see the difference between what Spain offered against Morocco and what Portugal can offer against Morocco. Okay. So, long answer to your short question, Portugal. And it's not like me to ask a short question. Um, <laughs> just, I, 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 like, we can't ignore the other issues and there are very credible talking points away from the football. Um, the nature of a tournament like this is journalists have a far greater window in that first week building up to it to focus on issues away from the sport and once the football starts you're on that treadmill uh, on the ground do you see much dissension much opposition much awareness of the areas around human rights and other issues of equality which call into question the entire staging of the tournament in the country uh, in all honesty, Damien, no. Um, and that is not uh, in any sense to cover up anything that I might have seen and not want to talk about. It is not there. But then the other side of it is, this place is in a, a kind of a positive lockdown, if you can call it that. At every, every juncture, there is a policeman. On every lamppost, there are security cameras. There is no way that you're going to get up to something in this country and get away with it. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> That's good thing, bad thing, but that's the way it is in Qatar, and everybody knows that those are the circumstances under which this uh, World Cup is taking place. So I haven't seen anything that would make me think this wouldn't be the safest of places to spend time. There hasn't been anything to suggest that at all. I've been out, as I say, today because today was a day off, and I spent it walking the Corniche, which is the big uh, promenade that sweeps around the bay uh, on the Persian Gulf and out to uh, what they call West Bay, uh, which has all the skyscrapers on it, which wouldn't have been there 30 years ago. It's amazing to think mm. that this country has suddenly acquired all this wealth and then has put it into buildings and into infrastructure in double quick time. But then the backstory to that, of course, is what has been said about the migrant workers along the way. And how do you afford to do all these things? Well, if you don't pay people a lot of money, they come in under budget. And that's the whole debate that goes on mm. there. But your question is about, have I seen anything? And the answer is no. What I have seen is a World Cup that has been, has been run superbly well, uh, despite the fact that uh, 
one of the venues is literally like a, an oasis in the desert that rises like a mirage out of a desert at 30 miles away from the centre of Doha desperately hard to get to uh, desperately hard to get back from uh, that's Al Bight where England have played most of their matches and where they'll play on Saturday night but that apart because they didn't build the metro uh, to Al Bight because either it was too far away or they decided they wouldn't have it done in time but all the other venues have metro access which makes it really easy and has made it a World Cup uh, around the fans so granted uh, there's a lot of walking involved because in circumstances like this uh, big stadia big crowds they want lots of space around that's another security mm. aspect as well because you can manage crowds better in big open spaces than you can if they're crammed into smaller spaces like Wembley Way at Wembley and the final of the European Championship in 2021 and the contrast between that and here is staggering and Just, the other thing I might observe yeah. is there's no bad thing having no beer at the matches because it makes the going to being there and coming from a much more pleasant experience well that's yeah there you go I like all that just to finish if I take you back to 78 I'm, 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 I just recently read a brilliant book called Blood on the Crossbar which focuses on the 78 World Cup and it opens with the image of General Jorge Videla handing the World Cup the Gilles Rimet trophy to Daniel Passarella the captain of the Argentine team and the entire thesis is in that moment the World Cup was used to legitimise the junta and to legitimise the political situation in the country here we are 12 World Cups later and you could say the exact same thing is happening it's unrecognisable in terms of the corporate aspect and the beast that the World Cup has grown into. But if I ask you to compare your first World Cup in 78 to this World Cup in 2022, at its core, is the romance and the magic still as strong for you as it was all those years back? I'm a football fan, Damien, uh, so the answer to that is yes. Uh, I have grew up following the World Cup from my first realisation that it was taking place in 1958 when I was growing up in Belfast and the Northern Ireland team were there and the Welsh team were there and it was all romance. 62 in Chile, 66 in England, 70 in Mexico, 74 in West Germany and then I went to Argentina. I take the point about the Junta in, in Argentina at the time and I think it's rather ironic that uh, my first World Cup and now this one, my 12th, that they they have taken place against similar backgrounds where there has been unrest about uh, where the World Cup is going to take place and should it be taking place there and is it risking the fact uh, risking putting uh, legitimacy onto something that maybe shouldn't be uh, considered in the way that other other countries systems are but who knows it's not for us to say we didn't bring the World Cup here mm. FIFA did it's FIFA's business and, and it's, it's for FIFA to decide but I agree it has become an absolute beast of a thing since the mid 90s since the, it went to the United States and then it it kind of went all across the world the Far East and South Africa I mean there were there were problems there and then it was given to Russia at a time when Russia was uh, up to its mischief. So, you know, this this is the way of the world uh, and no football fan is going to change that but every football fan will want to be a part of the World Cup when it rolls around every four years. George, go well between now and the end of the tournament. Thanks so much for being with us as always. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's George Hamilton joining us uh, live from Qatar. So plenty of reflections. 51552. Uh, for your texts, we are going to switch attention from the circus that is the FIFA World Cup to the circus that is the F1 calendar. And we're going to join, oh, well, we're going to be joined by Lee McKenzie after the break. Stay with us. Game on. Uh, you're very welcome back to the programme. I'm, I'm here kind of in shock. You think you know a colleague and then they tell you during the ad break that they spent their morning watching the Harry and Meghan Netflix documentary and 
leaves you kind of questioning your professional existence. Anyway, away from that and back to this, um, The Overlap, the Sky Sports YouTube channel featuring Roy Keane, Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher have announced their uh, very first Irish live show. It'll take place in the Three Arena on March 23rd of next year. The trio will lift the lid on their celebrated playing careers as well as delving deep into today's hottest sporting issues and fill questions from the audience. You can expect insightful opinion uh, and more than the odd heated exchange. Imagine the queue of questions for Roy. Roy could fill the Three Arena on his own. Tickets will go on sale tomorrow at 10am and we want to give you the chance to win a pair of tickets to the show and all you have to do to win is answer this question which Overlap Pundit once managed the Spanish side Valencia you can simply text your answer to 51552 and uh, please do make sure to include your full name your county and your email address in the text as always competition terms and conditions apply and you can see those on 2fm.ie all you have to do is tell us which Overlap Pundit once managed the Spanish side Valencia so 51552, your name, your county, your email address in your text. So we have spent the first half hour of the programme chatting about the World Cup. We're going to chat about the world of Formula One for um, the next few minutes. And who better qualified to chat to us about that than uh, Lee McKenzie, who has uh, anchored much of the Formula One coverage, which we would have enjoyed in recent years. She's just published her brand new book, Inside Formula One, and joins us now. Lee, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. I did like the segue of Harry, Meghan, Roy Keane to me, so I feel that you're on the slide. Well, see, you're you're broad, you're broadcasting royalty. I I, I I could go with I could I, come here, I could just come up with, but you 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 know the the world of broadcasting where you're sitting there focused on the next thing, and then suddenly in your ear someone makes an audacious statement, and you start to question your very existence. And so, you're still going to either you know hold your nerve and carry on or, or yeah. sort of fix a smile on your face and carry on this, this is my world all the time and the, the worst thing is there's two people in the control room I've mentioned one of them spent their morning watching Harry and Meghan and I fear I may have libeled the other one who's sitting out there who could probably take a case for defamation against me for anyway we best move on um, I I, I, I for the first time in my life, I listened to your audiobook rather than read the book, which was the most yeah. enjoyable way. I drove to Limerick and back yesterday for work and you kept me great company. Um, the one thing that came across from it is this, you're there in a professional capacity. You are renowned for asking difficult questions when they need to be asked. But I get a sense from you that you are so happy to be in the centre of this world of madness because it means so much to you. Yeah, I think that's true. I'm, you know, I sort of grew up in this world and I absolutely love it. And it doesn't actually matter to me um, whether it's Formula One or rugby or horses. When I'm doing something I love, and I think this is a sort of kind of a good guide for life, you can always tell when someone's enjoying it. Um, but I'm not paid to fly around the world and have the time of my life. <laughs> I think that would be a very short-lived career. So ultimately, as you say, you know, it doesn't matter if I've been at a driver's wedding or, you know, a funeral or, you know, what we've been at the week before, because you share highs and, and some desperate lows. You've still got to show up and you've still got to do your job and they've got to do their job. Otherwise, it would be the end of story. You know, someone else would come in and replace me. So it's quite a strange balance to get right. But I've been part of it for such a long time. Um I and you know I do absolutely love it. Just the the way the world operates that you're in a certain city for a race weekend and literally on the Sunday evening the entire paddock decamps to a charter jet or some form of pre-organized transport and you travel en masse to the next city. Yeah. Um it does create a sense even just a sense of visual awareness that it is it really does open the door to these guys when and it's the same with sports people of any ilk when they see you on a repeated basis um 
they do tend to open up to you that little bit more because there is that sense of familiarity. Yeah, absolutely. I think where people go wrong is that they, they think that they're friends. Um, and there's a big difference between being friendly with someone and being friends with someone. And there, you can be both. That's not a problem. But ultimately, you still have to do your job at the end of the day. But it is very different. I mean, if you know, going back to the time where I was doing, say, 22 races a year, um, you end up eating with the same people. You're flying with the same people. Quite often you're in the gym or, or something like that. When I'm doing rugby, if I was doing Champions Cup, um, you know, I might see Leinster twice a season three times a season or something mm. it's a bit the same you know when you're when you're covering football like you know as, as George who was just almost would, would know as well you, you can't see every team every single week it just doesn't work out that way but when you do a tennis or a Formula One you are in this very weird circle you know circus you use the word circus and that's exactly what it is um, they, they are a unique brand of sports people because where else in the world, maybe aside from heavyweight boxing, where else in the world do you put your mortality on the line on a weekly basis? Yeah, and that actually resonates and, and comes through all the time. And it's not because they're talking about it, because they're not talking about it, but there's just an awareness there. Um, and there's a sort of theme, and I, I mentioned this in the book, that we all have a limited number of heartbeats, so use them well. And that can be, um, you know, me going, oh, I'm tired, I might just get room service, and then someone going, what do you mean, you're, you've come all the way to Sydney for four days, or Melbourne, or wherever you happen to be in the world. You know, live that moment, and I'll be there with like an XF1 driver or something, thinking, oh my God, I just want to sleep. Mm. But they do live every moment, and it doesn't matter if they're a current driver, an ex-driver, when you've had success measured in thousands of a second, which most of us can't fathom what that even is, you learn to live to very stringent rules. And, you know, it's just success is such a fine line and enjoyment is everything. And it's it's a very weird way of, of working, which you don't realise until you step out and go into other sports. And then other people, you know, I'd, I had it in rugby. I'd gone from Formula One. Uh, I was doing a match over at um Munster and I, I sort of sent a big email afterwards like a debrief like a Formula One debrief and I just remembered Jamie Heathlip calling me up going what on earth is this like you know we don't get this at the British and Irish Lions who do you think you are but in a sort of fun way because he'd never seen anyone work that way but that's how we all work in Formula One and the more time you spend with drivers the more that sort starts to rub off on you mm. And there are pros and cons to it, without a doubt. So, so the other thing then, to, to develop that somewhat, that obviously the risk that they deal with on a weekly basis, but it is also amongst the most fickle aspects of elite sport, irrespective of who you are at the end of the season, if you don't either have points on the board or perhaps more importantly, sponsors in the bank. Uh, literally, you can go from the top of the grid to being either at the bottom of the grid or not on the grid at all. So maybe does, does that fuel somewhat this almost James Hunt-like need to enjoy yourself and live life to the, m the max once you're at the, the elite end of the sport? Yeah, I mean, no. most drivers get to Formula One because they've won the junior formula on the way up. So very few drivers just turn up. Well, they've got to be good enough to get a super license. So there, there's a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, their dad owns a team or he just brings, you know, a bag of cash and off he goes. And sometimes that is true, but it doesn't mean to say that they're bad drivers. They're maybe just not good enough to be world champions or right at the very front. Therefore, you get very good drivers coming in and leaving a few years later and then they go off and race in America or other 
series as well. But they can always say they've been a Formula One driver. And why wouldn't you? If you're a you know a 19, 20 year old kid from Brazil who's like you know having the time of his life and can go to parties and turn up and drive fast cars and fly around the world and get looked after like a you know an absolute superstar. Mm then if you can't enjoy that, then I think there's something seriously wrong with you. Yeah, like in the, in the case of Felipe Massa, who, you know, became such a, a giant star in his own country and the way the the mm-hmm. Formula One season traditionally climaxes uh, in Brazil and a guy who literally a number of years beforehand was delivering dinners to those in the paddock. Like it's, you know, yeah. like it's it's an unbelievable story. And that's what I wanted to do in this book. You know, people had said, oh, well, maybe you could write your story because you've done Olympics and you've done this and done that. And I was like, well, I don't want to do it because A, I'm private and B, it'd be very dull because I'm not that exciting. But what I wanted to do was give these drivers... um, you know the sort of respect they deserve and let people know where they started from because I think in any sport to be able to support someone or to know why you like them or dislike them you've got to know their story you've got to know where they've come from and then you can appreciate that and if you just tap into you know some of the big uh, series that are on like a drive to survive or something Mm. you wouldn't know anything different I mean there's nothing wrong with that it's popularized the, the sport massively but it's been around for four years and you see what's in front of you. You don't learn the backstory. You don't know why if Fernando Alonso wins a race next year, how special that would be because he's been through a lot and he's not won a championship since 2006. So I just wanted to give a little, you know, put the focus back on the drivers um, using the stories that I've done throughout their careers as well and, and really give them the limelight that they deserve because if you don't have these guys there wouldn't be a sport. Mm. The the book is broken up into chapters focusing on, on your interactions and your experiences with various drivers. Um, the easiest thing to do is start with Michael Schumacher, who's the first chapter, and, and work our way yeah. through. But in Schumacher, the sport is what it is today because of the injection of interest that he brought to the grid in the 90s that a lot of the drivers who are on the grid today are either inspired by them their parents grew up watching Schumacher with the passage of time and is there an awareness do you think amongst the younger drivers on the paddock that this figure of legend they owe so much to him yeah I think there actually is because a lot of the people that are working at the teams would have worked with Michael in some capacity um you know, what's really interesting, I mean, actually, Ayrton Senna's physio is still working in Formula One. Wow. So when people become lifers in this sport, um, what's interesting is Michael changed it in so many ways. And I, I talk about this in the chapter, even when he was at Mercedes and not having the success that he had in his previous career, as it were, with, when he was winning with Ferrari, um, he still was probably the last to leave the track. He was the first in, last to leave the track. He took fitness to a completely different level. He really professionalised the sport and other drivers were like, well, who does he think he is? Well, actual fact, they learned quite quickly who he was because, you know, you don't get to that level of greatness um, by, you know, just being lazy in your private life and being great on a racetrack. To be able to sustain it, you've got to focus that, you know, your entire life around it. And that's what Michael did so well. And I think there is a huge appreciation. That's why it was so disappointing um, that his son Mick just um, you know struggled a bit this year but you know who wouldn't struggle when they've got the pressure of that surname and their father isn't able to come to the track with them so you know it's a, I think that's quite an emotional uh, you know side story to that Yeah and, and there's a tragedy around the morbid fascination that has developed over the course of the last 12 months as well which which everyone involved could just do without Yeah I think so I mean you've always got to respect 
people's privacy in these situations. You know, just because they deal with it by, you know, closing things down and keeping it to themselves, we don't really have a right to know uh, what's going on. Maybe the fans who have invested time and money and gone to watch Michael over the years would love to know. But I think also they just uh, appreciate um, where Michael is in his life. And therefore, you know, every time Mick was asked a question at the track, you just it tended to just have a bit of a weight to it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's very difficult to deal with when you're a young kid trying to make your own way. Um, you, I, I could, we'd be here all night were we to go through every driver. <laughs> and I have <laughs> questions about, I have questions about every driver that I, I'd like to <laughs> talk to you about from, from Hamilton, who's obviously taken on the flame, but yet proves to be such a, actually just briefly on Hamilton. He has mm-hmm. obviously, you look at his record, but yes, he appears to be such a divisive figure. And I get the sense from you, who obviously knows him and has dealt with his family and has watched him come through the ranks, that he is not deserving of the bad press that he gets for being just a unique character in a, a world of conformity. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Lewis, to me now, is more like the Lewis I knew when he was 18, 19, 20 years old, um, because he can feel that he can be himself again. Um, so... There was a time where, you know, he was, uh, you know, sending his plane to get Kanye West and like his family and bring them to Glastonbury and do all this kind of stuff. But why wouldn't you? Again, if you are suddenly earning 45 million a year, you come from Stevenage, you've just had your eyes open to everything, everything there is in front of you and you're growing up in the public eye. You know, I think everyone would make a, not mistakes, but, you know, just sort of change their, the way that they live. He's come back full circle. He knows who he is. He doesn't actually care if we like it or not. Um, but he is much more true to himself now than he has been before. He's been through a lot of adversity um, in his private life, uh, you know, on track as well. He's got nothing to prove. Mm. Um, I, I'm going to aim to be possibly the only interview that doesn't grill you repeatedly about Sebastian Vettel and your friendship with him. If people <laughs> want to know nice, about yeah. that, let them buy the book. So I'm going to put that exactly. to one side. The, the one, I, I wonder, am I unique in that regard? Um, the, the chapter that really fascinated me was Fernando Alonso, a man who has transformed how, like, Formula One was not a thing in Spain. It was all about bike racing. He has had a situation where they went from, I think the the line you have in the book is 200,000 viewers to 10 million viewers. For a guy who achieved all that he achieved in the sport, is it slightly disingenuous or harsh to say that he underachieved? Yes, no, that's absolutely true. And I think um, when I was watching back all my interviews, um, with these drivers which was a kind of a a, a really bizarre trip down memory lane I actually said that to him and I was cringing in my own home like hiding behind my laptop thinking oh my god how can you say that but he is eight points away from being a five-time world champion and I just can't imagine from that level of absolute greatness how you square that off with yourself I mean there are many reasons I couldn't be a professional athlete but moving on from something like that is probably one of the main ones um, Fernando is uh, you know can be a tricky character I you know, quite like him I think he's incredibly in- intelligent maybe too intelligent for his own good but just through things that have happened at teams badly timed moves he's found himself at the wrong team at the you know at the wrong time so he's left teams that have gone on to win championships just you know months before they've gone on and done so and I find that I found that chapter to write really frustrating I was getting frustrated when I wrote it because I could it just to me seems 
there was so much more. There, there, there could have been so, so much more. But he's happy, so I feel that like I should be happy. Yeah. So. And let, let's be honest, two championships, 32 Formula One wins. Like it's, you know, there's, there's fellas would uh, would give anything just to have a, a small bit of that. Can I, can I just, to, as we, we near conclusion, um, it, it's an unbelievable treadmill to be on. And for example, mm-hmm. like, you know, we, we'd hope to see you in Dublin for the Six Nations early next year. Yeah. And then those who embark on this, it is, it is a way of life. It has to be a way of life because the, the sequence of races is just so demanding. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I'm fortunate I do um, other sports. You know, I now will do 10 races because we can split them or, you know, maybe just a little bit more. We, we try and do half and half. But then you get things that clash. So at the moment, I'm in a sort of like, I'm down to do Saudi Arabia. I know my boss won't be, you know, he's in London, so he won't be listening to this. But um, it clashes with the Cheltenham Festival. So I'm all in a panic at the moment about how I, how late I can fly to Saudi Arabia, which is never um, sort of a, an issue anyway for me. But yeah, so you want to you want to do the things that you enjoy. You need to try and fit in possibly a Rugby World Cup in the busiest part of the Formula One season. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a Jenga just now that we're, we're trying to do between different broadcasters and different sports. And just to, to finish, if we can take the, the do a Wurzel Gummidge and take the Formula One head off and put the rugby head back on for okay. a second. Yes. Um, the, the rugby god, I, I, I do the radio interviews for, for the Six Nations for us here. And, you know, last yeah. week the rugby gods gave us back Warren Gatland, which is going to make things really <laughs> exciting again. And then the next day they take away Eddie Jones. It is going to be um, such a strange dynamic next year and one must wonder what it must be like to work within English rugby at the minute with a Rugby World Cup looming and a sense that they don't really seem to know they know what they want to do but they don't really seem to know how they're going to do it Yeah I think for me the timing I I don't necessarily think it was a wrong decision on Eddie but the timing is incredibly odd I think by this stage I think Wales is a little bit different because Warren is so ingratiated with that Welsh team that even when Wayne Pivak was there um, you know he has he's driving he's driving through Gatland Gate to get into the Principality Stadium and Warren is very much still a live presence um, in the WRU the English situation is incredibly different um, I think that they've almost committed by this point um, I'm not quite sure what can be done, although you would say the same. You know, I did uh, a lot of the South Africa matches in the build-up to the last World Cup, and we saw how much they changed 12 months out. But I don't know. It's a, it's a brave, brave call. Yeah. Um, and and if, they, if they can get the right man in, in place for the Six Nations, it might make a very, very significant impact on it. Um, Liam, miles over on time. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you in the press room in the Aviva for a cup of tea. I will. The Six I'll Nations be at the Aviva for a few uh, from, from February onwards. So thank you so much. It's thanks, Lee. Inside, for, Inside F1 is uh, the book. And if you're looking for uh, a last minute present for a motorsport fan, you could do an awful lot worse than that. We are going to chat uh, sports in the States, or I in America, with Shep on the way. <laughs> And you're very welcome back to the programme. Let's get straight down to business. Go to the States. Shep is with us. How are you doing, sir? I'm great, buddy. How are you today, Demo? Good to talk to you. Long time no speak. Um, I tell you, let's let's not mess around with time. We'll get straight into what is a very, very significant story within US sport, which has broken with over the past hour or two. Yeah, so Brittany Griner, um, let's real quick, you know, recap this, Damien. So Brittany Griner is one of the greatest you know, female basketball players that America's really ever produced. She's been an Olympian. She's been a WNBA all-star. She was a college champion at Baylor. Uh, she also plays like many women in the WNBA. Uh, they kind of play, you know, a, a, 
in the WNBA's offseason, they play somewhere in Europe, and she happens to play for a team in Russia. Well, she was detained when she landed back in Russia uh, earlier this year uh, to go play her season there and uh, was found with, you know, some illegal uh, substances in her possession, uh, just, you know, marijuana cartridges, things like that. Uh, she said she'd brought them there on accident, uh, but that's not legal in Russia. And so she's been detained. She was found guilty. And she's been in prison um, for several months now. And uh, the trial was held. And so there's been all these discussions about whether or not there would be uh, a way to get her back. Would there be a prisoner swap? And that actually was announced this morning. And so Griner is currently on a plane. Um, the United States government and the Russian government announced the swap this morning. Um, the U.S. is getting back Griner. The United States is giving up a guy that's been, you know, convicted of some pretty serious crimes for, you know, arms dealing and uh, things like that um, named Victor Boot. And so they, they traded the prisoners in uh, Abu Dhabi um, earlier today, and they're both flying back mm. to their respective countries. And so um, it's a it's an odd, odd, you know, it's one of these sports stories that gets into the world of geopolitics, Damien, yeah, you know. It, where, it's a, a big um, diplomatic incident, and I, I think there, there definitely was a sense around it that while an offence was committed, the punishment would not have been the same proportion were it an individual who didn't have such prominence who had committed the offence. I would agree, yes. I think that's been what the case is. What, okay. The feeling in America that has been what the case has been. Now you get into the argument of what was given up versus you know what you're getting back. Yeah. And then also, Damien, you know, there's another high-profile American, um, not as high-profile, I should say, but he's been there longer. Uh, and he's got military experience named, uh, his last name's Whelan. Uh, he's a retired Marine, I believe, and he's been in Russia detained for about four years. And the U.S. government has been on the record in multiple administrations saying that they feel like those charges are, you know, false and, and not worthy of the, the punishment that he's been okay. gotten. And the U.S. was trying to get a, a two-for-one or a two-for-two two prison swap, and they, they got the one-for-one one today. Uh, we'll switch attention to the World Cup. We spent the first half hour of the program reflecting on it to date. Um, the U.S., I don't know that it was ever a formality. You were always looking at maybe two from three from England, the U.S., and Wales to come through. The U.S. obviously made the knockout stages. But are, are you left reflecting on, on a rather limp exit from the World Cup? Yeah, so I, I think what what the discussion we had last week, Damien, with Marie and I, was the U.S. had, they had played really well in the first half of just about all of all three of their matches. And they needed to come out and play well in the first half against the Netherlands and maybe steal a goal and, you know, just go from there. And none of that happened. You know, they fell behind at about the 10-minute mark. They gave up another goal right before the half, so they're down 2 nothing. And, look, I'm, I am about to celebrate my 45th year on this earth, and I don't know if we've ever had an American striker in the World Cup who could go out and just get you two goals. You know, I mean, I don't know if that guy's ever really existed. Um, and so we were just too far behind. I mean, we, we got the one. We talked going into it. They had one player on this roster with World Cup experience, incredibly young. I think they were always playing for the future, um, getting a lot of guys some experience. But it was disappointing, I think, the effort that was put out in that round of 16 match. Okay, uh, just to, to finish, um, we're uh, with the final four of the college football playoffs, which is obviously a, a massive weekend of television viewing. Yeah, so um, it'll be the final four teams. You've got Georgia, who is the defending national champions, and they're undefeated right now. They won the SEC this past week, the Southeastern Conference. They're going to play Ohio State, who's the four seed out of the Big Ten. You know, they're always a perennial power. And then the other matchup you have is Michigan, who won the Big Ten, another Midwest school, and then 
Texas Christian University lost their championship game, but they stayed in it. There was a little bit of hubbub about whether or not Alabama could jump into it, but the Tide didn't have enough to get it done this year. So that'll all be right around New Year's when those games are played, Damian, and then the national championship will be a week or so later. And in, in 10 seconds, all eyes, we, 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 you know, we are so invested in your well-being and your good nature. <laughs> all eyes on Brother Martin Crusaders who are playing That's for the state right. championship in Louisiana on Saturday. That's right. That's right. The Brother Martin Crusaders out of New Orleans, Louisiana, playing for the state championship Saturday night at the Superdome, and Team Shep will be there. Do you have a mascot? We're the Crusaders. But like, what? Like, do you have a guy in a suit dressed up as something yes, stupid? Yes, yes, they call him the Crazy Crusader. But what is he? Well, he's like a knight. Oh, right. Okay. I lost. That was lost in translation. <laughs> Shep, sorry about that. Yes. Go well. Good luck to the Crusaders. We're all about the Crusaders this weekend. Good talk as always, it. Paul. Thanks. Thanks, Good guys. Luck. Shep, with us there. Congratulations, Dylan Cronin from County Limerick, the winner of the overlap t- tickets, who correctly identified that Gary Neville once managed Valencia. Uh, tune in tomorrow. Your last chance to win. Time for us to depart. Bet is on the way. Thank you to Laura Lee Davies, our broadcast coordinator. John Farrell produced from Damien O'Mara till tomorrow at seven. Good night. RTE. 2FM.